years ago, my friend Corey was surreptitiously converting a TV production storage space into his workshop where he was building furniture and stuff. He's a woodworker in addition to being in television production. And he had a friend who needed a home for his drum set. And there was room in this big windowless room in Gowanus, Brooklyn. So he set up his friend's drum set. And then he said, hey, I have drums if you ever want to come play music. So I came by and I had at the time, I think just one effects pedal, one that I had bought back in the 90s, a Boss pitch shifting delay pedal. And we were having fun with that one pedal. And then I can't remember how, which is weird because this is like literally only like three years ago, I decided to start circuit bending toys and keyboards, if you know what that is. It's where you like open up old Casio keyboards and 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 rewire them so they make crazy noises and stuff. I started doing that. And then around the same time, I celebrated a birthday. And my friend Daniel and I used to have this tradition when we both lived in New York City that we would, on my birthday, we would go out to lunch and then Daniel would buy me a fancy button-down shirt. But that year, I said, instead of a shirt, would you buy me a guitar pedal? So we went to, I think it was St. Mark's Music. It was a music, a little tiny music store in Manhattan. But anyway, we went in there and I said, I've started playing weird music with my friend and I just want, a, you know, just a crazy pedal, like just something really wild, not like a distortion pedal or a reverb pedal, but something really funky. And the guy recommended a ring modulator pedal from Montreal Assembly, which is a boutique pedal maker in Canada. And ring modulators can be extremely abrasive and, and noisy. So he recommended this rig modulator and Daniel bought it for me as a birthday gift. It was very generous. And then I took it back to the windowless room and started running my circuit bent toys through it. And then I was just like, this is this is the greatest. This is so crazy and great. I'm going to start buying a million pedals. And then I, yeah, and then I just kind of went a little bit crazy. I don't tend to think of you as a musician. In fact, I don't know that I've heard any of your music oh i'm not uh, a musician you, don't worry don't worry about that i'm not a musician you have played music to a point where your friend said hey come over and and jam with me yeah i had played in a um i lived in boston in the 90s and i played in an indie rock band and we performed like really kind of croony weird ballads like with a lot of spring reverb and like um six eight time signatures surf music was really big in boston in the 90s and we were kind of adjacent to that scene and then i stopped playing music for a really long time i just stopped making music i got back into music making i guess in two ways one was that i started making mashups i got really into making mashups i just loved i loved mashups and my friend john hodgman and i both downloaded this really cheap dj software called dj where you could sync tempos and we both started making mashups and then i got so into it that i invested in buying ableton live which is a digital audio workstation i started making a bunch of mashups and i was making them for um the election profit makers podcast using like clips of like ben carson at the republican national convention or rudy giuliani losing his mind over how much he loved donald trump i also started making music because i hosted a tv show going deep and it was a very bare bones production and i did a lot of the animations and the show graphics in Photoshop. And then I just started making a lot of the music too, also using Ableton. 
so I kind of got back into music making through my laptop. When Corey invited me to play music, it was because he knew that I could play a little bit of drums. I'm not a great drummer, but I can play a 4-4 beat. I played drums in punk bands in high school. And then getting back into that space of playing music with people, I just started to get much more experimental than I than I think I had ever been really in terms of pedals and circuit bending and like just making drones and zoning out and playing for like eight hours at a stretch, you know, losing track of time and trying to go to different places. If I could kind of paint a picture of, of your career from the outside, that you're somebody who has a lot of hobbies, who is actually able to leverage some of them into into a living, <laughs> you know, that, that you clearly have a lot of different things that you're interested in and, and somehow you're able to be successful at, at a lot of different things. Well, to that, I, I will say thank you and that my PR people must be doing a masterful job of spinning my career because as I approach 50 years old... You're not starving. Not, not this week. Not currently. It, you know, as I get closer and closer to 50, I'm kind of like, wait, what am I doing? Am I just doing a bunch of random hobbies and not really getting good at any of them and not ever making a lot of money in a single year? Like, have I wasted my life? But I guess from the outside, it can seem kind of appealing. And there are things that I like about it. But I've always told myself, like, don't monetize your hobbies because then it'll become work. And I've told myself that over and over again. I've been telling myself that for 20 years, ever since I became a professional cartoonist back in the Bush administration. And I'm trying to do a good job of making sure that noise making and bleeps and bloops are just fun and can be an outlet for real expression and exploration and to try not to worry about how to make money from it. Although I did just start a band camp page and I did make a little money. I understand the impulse of, I mean, you know, I, I am lucky that I've been able to make a living as a professional writer for, you know, 15 years at this point and get to do podcasting as part of the job. But if you don't monetize, I mean, you specifically, if you don't monetize your hobbies, then what's left, right? I mean, all like all or most of these <laughs> things that you're doing for a living are things that started off as creative hobbies. Yeah, I think that is true. I'm trying to think of something I've made money at in the last 20 years that did not start out as a hobby. Well, when I worked for the Census Bureau, because I had quit cartooning and I was broke in 2010, that was just a job. But then ironically, that led to a hobby of getting obsessed with pencil sharpening and starting a pencil sharpening business. And then that led to a book and the book indirectly led to the TV show. And interesting, inter I've had a conversation with a friend about this once. And my friend said, you need to always have a day job, a semi monotonous day job because that's when you get really creative because then you're kind of like you're like rebelling against the day job like when i started making cartoons using clip art back in the 90s it was because i just had all these boring temp jobs and there was nothing to do and that's what led me out kind of out of desperation to while away the hours that's what led me to make clip art cartoons and then of course that turned into my career for i don't know eight or nine years yeah, I'm trying. I what I really need. Okay, here's a hobby I've never monetized. I like riding my bicycle. I have a sneaking suspicion I will never be a good enough bicyclist to be paid to ride a bicycle, and so that I think is just a pure. Un, that that hobby is un is unstained by by rank capitalist impulses. The music making and the bloops and bleeps have been compromised because of my Bandcamp page. 
the comics have been compromised because I was paid to make cartoons. The pencil sharpening was <laughs> compromised beyond my wildest expectations. I made a lot of money sharpening pencils. One should not go to Wikipedia as a, a primary source of information on somebody. But, you know, I, I did visit your page and you're one of those people in the world. You're one of those creative people in the world where, you know, I, I, I don't know how, how I would describe what it is that you do, like what your job is or, or what people yeah. know you for. The The Wikipedia yeah. entry lists cartoonists first, which is, I mean, it hasn't been the case for what, like a decade at this point. Um, I think the thing I made that got them, that had the widest reach was, yeah, was probably Get Your War On. The cartoons that I published, that I made with clip art and published on the web in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks. And then we're in Rolling Stone and we're, and we're, you know, compiled in a bunch of books. I think if anybody knows who I am, they probably know me for that. But yeah, that was, that was almost 20 years ago now. And my Wikipedia page, I'm sh- sure is a mess. <laughs> because again, like I was just, I was just earlier this afternoon having a talk with a friend who's also in the creative world. And we were talking about how we're waiting to hear about a TV project that we want to make. And if, and if we were to make it, it would be a big, huge, all-consuming job that would last for years and years. And we were both just saying like, yeah, it would just be so much fun to just have a big, huge thing that you work on, that you're all in. I kind of had that with Going Deep, actually. Hosting that show and, and co-writing it and producing it and doing so much of the creative stuff around it. There were just a lot of executive decisions to be made in addition to having to be in front of the camera and doing research and stuff. That was an all-consuming job. And at times it was really stressful. But I really liked just being 100% in on a project. Whereas now it's like, well, I host co-host a podcast once a week. And then, you know, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to build my own guitar pedals. And then I put out this little album of experimental music. And I hope that my cartoon Dick Town gets renewed, but I don't know about that yet. And then in the meantime, maybe I'll, maybe I'll write another book or maybe there's a freelance magazine essay I could write, you know? What does it take though for you to really to commit yourself to that? I mean, is it, you know, in the case of like a book, for example, is that just a matter of sitting down and 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 working on the proposal? Are you in a position where you're kind of waiting for people to approach you about projects? I think a huge flaw in my career and in my personality is I'm an extremely passive person. And when I look back on my career, a lot of the things I have done have been because people reached out to me. And to, I think I will say in my own defense, at least when they reached out to me, I agreed to do the work to make the thing happen. But Get Your War On did not start as something I wanted to be, you know, a professional cartoon project. That was something I just made for myself and sent to some friends. And then in the early days of internet viral culture, it kind of went out of control. And then, you know, a publisher reached out to me about doing a book and Rolling Stone reached out to me about doing it on their magazine. With the pencil sharpening thing, that started on a lark, and then a publisher in Brooklyn reached out to me and said, hey, do you think you could do a book about this? And I was like, yeah, I think I could. And then I put together I put together a book proposal. And then after doing some live pencil sharpening events, some, some friends of mine who were TV producers said, hey, do you think this could be a TV show? We'll help you. And I said, yeah, I think it could. And then we did the work and made Going Deep. <laughs> and then I don't have a lot of projects in my life where I feel like I came up with the I mean, I came up maybe with the idea, but I didn't come up with the way to make it into a more substantial thing. Like, I came up with the idea for artisanal pencil sharpening, but I didn't come up with the idea of turning it into a a book, right? 
I feel like I, maybe this is because maybe this is because I'm doing my year in business taxes, getting them ready for my accountant this week. But I'm becoming very, very sensitive to how passive I've been in my career, and like I, I just got to. I have to say, I have a case of the woulda, shoulda, couldas right now. Just being like, oh man, if only, I had, if only I had more. It's I. I don't think it's. Amb- I don't think it's. I don't think I lack for ambition. I just. I, I'm not disciplined enough to see this stuff through. Maybe I'm afraid of rejection. Maybe I'm afraid that no one will like my idea. Maybe I'm just a stone cold, lazy bum who doesn't want to do the work to get a proposal off the ground or to pitch something. The idea of poster syndrome is something that seems to come up pretty frequently in conversation these days. And I, and I wonder, because I've heard you describe your comics work and your own, not only your own personal feelings towards it, but you know the feeling of feelings of the broader comics community of people who sit down and draw panel after panel, whereas you were using clip art. I mean, was that was that part of your hesitation in the long run is that you just felt like that maybe it was undeserved because maybe you weren't putting in the work you felt like your peers were? No, I I I would I think I was always confident enough in what I was doing with clip art comics that that insecurity was never a real issue for me. I've loved cartoons since I was a kid. My dad had Saul Steinberg books and I got really into Crazy Cat and I feel like I had pretty good taste. And Edward Gorey was a huge thing when I was a kid. My dad had some Edward Gorey books. I knew that what I was doing with the clip art was not traditional cartooning. But I also knew <laughs> I also knew that that first clip art comic I made, My New Fighting Technique is Unstoppable, it made me laugh so much. It made me laugh so hard and I felt like I'd been waiting my whole life to read those cartoons. And it was also really well received when I started self-publishing it. I think when I made, and I know that there were cartoonists who kind of grumbled that it wasn't quote unquote real cartooning. You know, I drew cartoons for my college newspaper and, you know, I made little filthy comic books when I was in middle school that I would sell, you know, for a quarter. But I was never a great artist. I was never a great cartoonist. So the clip art was just you know, it was just something to attach the the wacky dialogue to. To some, you know, you have to have a mouth with a so the word bubble has somewhere to point, right? Get your war on was even more obviously that because it was just the same four or five pieces of clip art over and over again. I think the only thing about the clip art with Get Your War On was eventually, towards the end, when I was really getting burnt out, both of the Bush administration and having to make jokes on deadline, I was also just like, I kind of felt like I've done everything I can do in this format. I would very rarely draw my own images or sometimes I would incorporate other public domain images for, you know, characters who would appear over the course of a few panels or whatever. But it really wasn't like there wasn't, I didn't feel, I was starting to feel like, okay, this is, this feels really familiar and I, I'm kind of on autopilot and I, I, it, it's lost its appeal for me. As far as I could tell, you didn't stop doing it because it, you know, it was waning in popularity you stopped doing it because, and understandably, you had burned out and, and and didn't want to do it anymore. But I think that does speak to sort of maybe not having the best financial instincts when it comes to monetizing your creative pursuits. No, believe me, man, this is, this is something that I discuss with my therapist. My relationship to, quote unquote, work versus play, my relationship to adulthood and making securing a future for myself, my relationship to money, my fucked up my fucked up feelings about having money and getting paid to do something that's fun and is that okay or does that mean I'm a bad person? 
my immaturity and what does it mean that I'm that I don't have you know I don't have a stock portfolio like what do I think is going to happen like there's a lot there's a lot of stuff a lot of these issues are like very much in my mind right now you know there's only been one or two years in my life over the past 20 years where I've made enough money creatively to have that feeling where it's like genuinely exciting to like look at my ATM receipt and get a little like charge out of it like oh my god look at all that wonderful money you know that's all long gone but like it's a good feeling and i have to spend a lot of time my a lot of time like convincing myself like it's okay you deserve to have money you deserve to not have financial constant financial anxiety and stress about oh god i hope i can get the covid relief bill i actually need it like that type of stuff oh god i hope we get some more patreon subscribers it actually helps pay my rent you know so it's uh it's it can be exhausting specifically for the comics you know cuz obviously that represents a, a big pivot or transition for your career you'd wake up one day and you're you're just not doing them anymore like how do you this thing that that you've really you know built so many people knew you for that you were you know more or less making a living off of um how do you just kind of move on from that well with get your war on it was really running me down and um i had always told myself i would just quit whenever bush lost whenever bush left office i was going to quit and i remember in 2004 I published a comic in Rolling Stone and was like, hey, if you hate this comic, you should vote for John Kerry because if if he wins, I'm going to quit making this comic. But uh, then I got another four years out of it. And then by the end, I was like, I have to stop doing this. The only exciting thing about Get Your War On was that Huffington Post used to have this humor website called 236.com. And um, Holly Schlesinger and Brian Spinks, who were two producers who I knew through the New York comedy scene, uh, wanted to make animated versions of Get Your War On. And that was actually really fun because it was a new style of writing. I was working with two really talented voice actors. We had some cool rotoscoping stuff going on. Like that was creatively exciting. But actually making the three panel paper cartoon or I guess, you know, static cartoon, that had just run its course. And also I could tell like it was it was getting harder and harder for me to have that first cathartic rush with those cartoons that I had back in the fall of 2001. And I guess obviously that's, you know, it's hard to capture lightning in a bottle as a creator, you know, multiple times in the same medium and the same specific work. But it would, I just felt like it had run its course and I didn't kind of, towards the end, I wasn't really respecting the comics I was putting out. So Bush left office. Obama took office. I was like, that's it. All problems are solved. No more need for satire. Obama will be perfect. And then I retired. Was part of the impulse to just kind of extract yourself from the the daily news cycle? I mean, you know, this is something as a journalist during COVID, this is something that's, you know, like a, a yet another factor that has been leading to my own burnout. It's just having to wake up every course, morning yeah, and yeah. engage with it. I hoped that by quitting being a political cartoonist, it would be good for my mental health because I would no longer, you know, just be reading websites all day. But of course, my news consumption didn't change. I just didn't no longer had a cathartic outlet for, for all my anxieties and frustrations and anger about it. So it was kind of the worst of both worlds, you know, and I don't know what it is about politics, I, you know, because now I do this political podcast where we bet on political outcomes. And it's kind of like it's the same situation. You've got to read all these depressing articles and and then make jokes about it. I don't know why I keep being drawn to that stuff, the political stuff. My fear is that I'm drawn to it because I feel like it is, by definition, political stuff is not evergreen. It's not going to hold up. And so I kind of think the threshold for what succeeds is less 
it's less it's a it's an easier threshold to to cross maybe that's wrong but like i like you know there's people out there making graphic novels and cartoons about like their kids dying of cancer or the holocaust or you know some deeply personal thing that happened to them and that's not really what my most of my cartoons or most of the things I've made have ever really been about, except on like super subterranean levels that even I can't identify. Political stuff is so much more fleeting. And because of that, it can be really exciting because you can turn around and have a pithy take or a, <laughs> a hot comment about something that's breaking news. That can be really cathartic to people. But the, the other side of that is it's really rare for something that is so timely, time sensitive and, you know, context sensitive. To also hold up, you know, over, you know, to stand, to stand the test of time, as it were. I think Get Your Warren will be interesting in another 10 years because it's a snapshot of how a certain segment of the U.S. population thought about the war on terror. But I can't imagine that someone in 50 years would rather read that than read you know, <laughs> the book I published about pencil sharpening techniques, assuming we still have pencils in 50 years or whatever. The thing, I guess, about that, that, that I have a little trouble wrapping my brain around is, that, you know, I think in the however like close to like 500 episodes of, of the show that i've done i think the only person that comes to mind who i think was generally genuinely not only just like okay but actually embraced the idea of doing art that was kind of ethereal was uh was reggie watts you know we discussed why he wasn't recording albums and he i think just preferred that to be making something in a moment in the live setting and it, and it sounds like you're you're getting at the fact that political cartooning has a limited shelf life is actually ultimately positive for you. Is that right? I don't know if it's a net positive or a net negative. I just think it, I think that if you are making political cartoons that are published, I mean, honestly, get your war on, you don't need get your war on anymore because that's what Twitter is. And I guess it's a similar thing. Like how many of the, of the 6,000 tweets I faved today about Ted Cruz going to Cancun in the middle of the crisis in Texas, like how many of those are going to stand the test of time? I mean, some of them will, but most of them you're just going to forget about, right? I think I can relate to what Reggie Watts is saying a little bit, not because I'm an artist of his caliber, but, but because I do remember, and, and that quote you just, or, you know, the way you described what he said reminded me of something, which was that when we first started playing our weird improvised music in that room in Gowanus. And as the, as the circle of musicians grew from Corey and me to some of my high school buddies, to some people I had met while making going deep. And as our, as our collection of instruments grew to include like a electric organ and, you know, more and more weird noise boxes and pedals and amplifiers and a steel drum, I didn't want to record anything. And I used to be a, I used to be an obsessive archivist of my, of my, I had a, band in high school with my buddies that nobody knew about, but I recorded everything and we recorded thousands of songs, most of which were improvised. But when it came to this new project, I was like, I don't want to record it. Let's just be in the moment and really be present and not worry about recording it. And then eventually after about six months or whatever, I was like, well, <laughs> well, obviously this is the greatest music ever created. We have to record it for the, for the benefit of all humanity. <laughs> and then I started recording everything again. I don't have the strength of character that Reggie Watts has to just, <laughs> just be in the moment and like, just enjoy something for what it is in that moment in time and not worry about like recording it and then going back and listening to it a week later and being like, oh man, I, I mistimed that loop. It's out of phase or whatever. Uh, I don't know. A lot of this comes down to 
reassessment of the decisions you made in hindsight. Obviously, like you understand why you were doing what you were doing at the time, but when you go back and and look at it, you you, you just think about like the countless hours of of music that no one will be able to listen to. When like I'm not saying this to speaks like specifically to your own ability as a as a musician, but like the the fact of the matter is probably most of it wasn't you know necessarily worth archiving or something that you would necessarily what? want to go back and listen to. I know well, you, okay, okay. you obviously never heard it because that's, that's preposterous. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true. You know, I put out this, I put out this album on Bandcamp and, and there, you know, there's some people who really liked it, but I really do think that like, like experimental music and noise music, it's a lot like um, drugs. It's like, it's much more fun to do it yourself than to watch someone else do it or to be in the audience while someone does it. You know what I mean? Like, it can be so esoteric and personal and um, especially if there's no real structure or anything, it's just like, it's fun to do, but I wouldn't, I, I, I hesitate to subject other people to it. Is there an element of self-sabotage? Do you think in some of this stuff that you're just, uh, Oh, so you have been talking to my therapist. We have a podcast on the side that we don't release out right. into the Is world. Is he going to come on in the second half and give his, and give his, director's commentary this is your life because i think we're all guilty of it to to some degree clearly i'm not a therapist but you know my understanding of it is that like at least in a lot of people it's it's rooted in a worry of or maybe at least like connected to imposter syndrome or some of these other ideas but like not wanting something to to get too big not wanting that one specific thing to get too popular i think there could be some of that but again i'm familiar with imposter syndrome and I'm not, I don't think I have it. Not because, I assume it's not because I'm such an egomaniac that I think I'm a genius and, and I'm not an imposter. I don't think it's that. I think I have the thing that is below imposter syndrome, which is like, maybe I don't deserve to be content or happy. And so that's what leads to the self-sabotage. Like I know I literally wrote the greatest book about pencil sharpening techniques that that has ever existed or will ever exist. I know that Get Your War On meant a lot to many people during a really difficult time. And I know that Going Deep was one of the best how-to shows disguised as a comedy show that will ever be made. I'll stand by those things. You know, they were good things. You know, none of them made me rich and none of them were breakout hits. And of course, I never got the critical accolades that I secretly craved every night in bed, you know. But I don't... So I guess what I'm saying is I don't think what I have is imposter syndrome. I think I just... The self-sabotage comes from something <laughs> much more dire, <laughs> which is for one reason or another, I've like convinced myself that there, that there would be something wrong with the universe if I was to actually be content and happy. And I have to constantly work, you know, like the thing my therapist is always telling me, I'm sure he's rolling his eyes when he says it at this point, or maybe he's just hitting like a button on his, on his sound card, which is like, people deserve to be, people deserve to be loved and happy and well-adjusted, like get over yourself. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I get that from the standpoint of, I understand that idea and I feel that way about other people, but it's just, it's hard to apply to yourself. Like, I'm sure like you seem like absolutely. a, a yep, kind and absolutely. empathetic person and you probably like want all of the people around you to be happy and successful, but it almost feels like selfish to, to want that for yourself. Yeah, I think, and I, you know, I don't know, I don't know how personal or heavy this can get, but sometimes I, you know, I, the thing I talk about my therapist is like, I don't get it. I came from a loving home 
As far as I can tell, my parents were loving, supportive, empathetic people, you know? And in spite of that, I was a huge bully in middle school and high school. I've been incredibly selfish and cruel to people throughout my life. I like to think that I can be a good friend, but I'm sure my friends would say, actually, he was kind of a dick that one time, or he didn't step up the way I wanted him to step up. I don't know where it comes from. And so I was talking to my therapist, like, maybe it came from growing up in the church. But again, like, I grew up in the Episcopal church. I didn't grow up in some crazy-ass Pentecostal church about fire and brimstone you weren't holding stakes or anything it's like yeah it's like a pretty anodyne institution but there is the confession of sin where you're like you know you know i let you down in thought word and deed by what i have done and by what i have left undone maybe i just heard that stuff too early and just internalized this idea that like i'm a fuck up you know that's basically what the confession of sin is like oh god i really fucked up god please forgive me i i really don't know where it comes from and 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 you pointed at something else that's really interesting which is like it could also just be another manifestation of my own self-regard and navel-gazing. Like, obviously, I'm not the worst person in the world. And obviously, I deserve to be happy. And maybe this is just a, maybe this is just like a politically correct version of being an egomaniac, which is telling yourself, like, oh, I'm a piece of shit. It's the inverse of being like, I'm the greatest person who's ever walked the earth. Everyone bow down and look at my golden living room or my model, my my model wife, you know, you say like in hindsight that you're able to not reassess, but you're able to appreciate these things. Look at these things that you've done and, and appreciate them for, for what they're worth. For example, writing the greatest uh, pencil sharpening book of all time. Is that the kind of realization that only comes with distance? Like, are you, are you able to appreciate them? No, I knew it as I was writing it. I knew it as I taking that specific example. I had so much fun writing that pencil sharpening book. One, we decided to make it a how-to manual because at the time I was collecting a lot of like mid-century how-to manuals because I just thought they looked so cool and I loved the way they were designed. And I got my friend Meredith to take the photos. I didn't. I don't think I wrote a word of the book until we had all the photos done. We we just laid it out like a how-to manual and then I just wrote around the photos and I had so much fun writing that book. I mean, whenever, you know, it's like, this is probably not a unique insight, but like the stuff that I feel good about is the stuff where it was just a lot of fun to create the first couple of weeks of making get your roar on were just so fun and exciting and emotional making my new fighting technique is unstoppable at that boring temp job was so much fun i was cracking up so hard making you know i made this animated show with john hodgman called dick town we had so much fun you know directing actors and being in the studio and ad-libbing on mic you know it was just like really really fun it was a lot of work but the fun stuff i think most of the things that i've made i I can I have a pretty good idea close to the close to the moment of creation of oh this is good or like oh I'm in I'm onto something here either because I'm like cracking up or maybe I'm confusing myself in an interesting way that feels fresh you know I've made cartoons before that I don't really understand how they work or you know what they're about but it's like really got me like really engaged and wide awake you know i've made fake websites that really make me laugh and i don't know why they're funny and it's just something i don't know where i don't know why it's tickling me but i'd be like oh this this works in a just world this this would be a hit <laughs> which i guess is is again i must have the i must not have imposter syndrome i think it's the other people who are the imposters what's that line from sunset boulevard it's like my face didn't get big. That's the pictures that got small or whatever it is. <laughs> like I have, I'm not the imposter. You people are the imposters. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like we're circling around something and, and you can tell me if this is just like completely inaccurate, but do you equate success with things not being fun anymore? Yes. I'm well, it's, I believe that a successful person 
can also have fun doing what has made him or her successful. I think for me, I have a deep-seated, I think I have a deep-seated belief that is irrational. And like I said before, I don't know where it comes from. A deep-seated belief that either I don't deserve to be successful or I don't deserve to be happy. And I certainly don't deserve to be happy while being successful. <laughs> that, would, that would be a real... <laughs> that would be a real inversion of all that is holy, right? But the fucked up thing, man, is like, I've liked the moments when I've been successful. I liked going on book tours and meeting people and having them tell me how much the comic meant to them. I liked flying around the country and going to NASA labs and stuff making going deep. I loved being able to stroll into a laboratory with a TV crew backing me up and just ask a bunch of crazy questions and get the white glove treatment. Like, that was great. That was terrific. I was really, really hoping that show would be such a big smash hit and I could go on late night talk shows and Jimmy Fallon would tossle my hair or whatever. Then maybe I'd be president. <laughs> I'd go down my golden escalator. <laughs> but I do think that I do think I have something really deep and tangled up. And, and it might also be, I mean, it could be as simple as maybe it's not that I feel I don't deserve to be happy or that I don't deserve to be successful. Maybe it's just that I'm worried that if I, a lot of people knew what I was making, maybe they wouldn't like me, you know, or maybe they wouldn't like, maybe they wouldn't like it. Another thing that I've thought about, and I think about this more and more is I think there actually was a, there is a stark generational divide between Gen X and millennials and I'm going to paint with a really broad brush right now. But I was a stone cold Gen Xer. And for a lot of us Gen Xers, becoming successful was selling out, right? Yeah. Now that might have been, and I think this is not the only example of what I'm about to describe that has happened in my life. This is not the only time I've done this. But sometimes I wonder if I took a political vocabulary and applied it to a personal insecurity. If you are a self-loathing person, who is afraid of success, who is skeptical of the worth of your own happiness. There is a great way to launder that self-loathing, which is to gussy it up as a political act about integrity. My band would never sign with a major label because that would be selling out. Corporate rock still sucks, right? The old SST Records bumper sticker. Ooh, I just aged myself right there. God damn. And, and so I do think that that is an example of a generational or cultural or political posture that I took on because I was a member of that generation. It was very much in the air. I mean, God damn, we could talk. So Remember when Dan, Dan Klaus made the brand, the brand vocabulary for OK Soda? I mean, that was blowing people's minds back in the day, seeing that on the subway. I think it was Dan Klaus. Yeah, it was, it was Klaus and uh, Charles Burns. I think they both did. The, yeah, uh, Charles Burns too, right? The Sonic Youth signing to Geffen Records? What has this world come to? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> And I do think... That 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 some of us now, you know, getting getting into our dotage, our, us old Gen Xers, some of us never made that leap to just being like, yeah, fuck it. I want to be successful. I remember once like raging against the machine. It was the most extreme example of this because they were a super political band and then they became like super successful, you know, and then there would be articles in indie rock magazines about how Zach De La Rocha was caught shopping at Banana Republic. It's like the guy needs clothes. He had a hit record. Let him buy some clothes. Maybe he doesn't have time to go to a thrift store, and spend eight hours looking for a pair of pants that still fits. Sometimes you just want to go where the clothes are organized because you're, you know, you need something in your size. I think, I think nowadays kids or, or artists to their credit, are much more comfortable being like, yeah, I want to be the biggest thing the world has ever seen. Of course I do. I want to be a huge successful rapper who everybody knows. I want to make amazing movies that everybody loves. 
the the snob i mean i mean i do i mean they can go too far obviously like i'll totally side with martin scorsese everyone's yelling at martin scorsese because he says superhero movies are dumb and it's not real cinema like i agree with that like i'll take martin scorsese as an honorary gen xer but i do think overall the attitude that young people these days have towards fame is and but again now that i'm saying this out loud i'm thinking but maybe this is only a self-selecting group because by definition i'm old the only young creative people i'm going to know about are going to be the ones who are so famous and an old man like me can know about them so maybe maybe this is all <laughs> maybe this is all a wash there's an extremely pragmatic capitalistic reason why a lot of that's shifted and it's because it's impossible to make money as a musician anymore if you don't you have to sell out to a corporation because nobody feels like they have to pay for music anymore it's the only revenue stream is to be in a T-Mobile commercial. I remember like there being like a Buzzcock song in uh, some SUV commercial. Having your cool punk rock song in a commercial like that is like the, the, the ultimate sin. And now it's just kind of understood that if you want to be a professional musician, that's what you have to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and for all the Gen X indie cred that I used to throw around, I'll be the first to admit, you know how I know about Nick Drake was that fucking Volkswagen commercial. I don't think I'd ever heard Nick Drake until they, until they dropped that Volkswagen commercial, blew everybody's mind. And so that turned me on to like one of the greatest albums in my, you know that I've ever heard. So like, who you know, I have no standing here. Absolutely. And I totally would have been the guy who had been like, no, we're not going to do that. Thanks, but no thanks, Paul Schaefer. We think it would really suck to have an orchestra play our music on national television. <laughs> to get us to a broader audience. I don't know if that was a flash in the pan or if that's a or if that's an attitude or position that's struck by generations of artists across the millennia, you know, this idea of selling out or compromising your values or whatever. But I've but again because you know, I'm working on my taxes and I'm looking at these income numbers and I'm wondering about like what how has my attitude or my posture contributed to this situation? And I wonder and then I try to disentangle how much of this is generational, how much of this is personal, how much of this is the culture I grew up in. How much of this is cuz I you know, started listening to the Minutemen when I was too young. I was too young to listen to the Minutemen. The Minutemen they licensed a song for a for a Toyota commercial. So that Mike Watt could help D Boone's dad pay his medical bills. Like if the Minutemen are going to be in a commercial, like it's fine. Go ahead. Live your life. You know, we jam a cono up to a certain point. Yeah. And then at some point it's like, yeah, you know what else is good? Food, health insurance, you know, retirement funds. Like good for you. I was so happy when Mike Watt started playing for Iggy Pop and the Stooges because I feel like, yeah, man, go make some fucking money. Stop <laughs> Stop sleeping on the floor, touring 500 nights out of the year, you know? He does just seem to be enjoying the hell out of his life now, though, every time you see him. <laughs> so yeah. I can't fault him for anything. We've talked around a, a few of these things, and you know, and none of them stand out to me as being like particularly egregious. But are there, are there instances in your life where you were offered something that you turned down because it felt like it was selling out or it wasn't cool? Or does this man usually manifest itself in subtler ways? I don't think I've ever I don't think I've ever been offered a big payday that I have turned down for ethical reasons. I don't yeah, I don't I'm trying I don't think so. I'm trying to remember. I'm sure it's happened on like a micro level where the stakes were like 5 or 600 dollars or something where it's just like such an esoteric and fine <laughs> 
but you still feel so good about yourself for having done it for that day. Yeah, right. Something like that. I don't, I don't, you know, I wish I could be like, yeah, you know, Glee on Fox, they wanted to uh, use one of my um, circuit bent instruments in one of their sing-alongs. And I said, no, because you shafted my friend, Jonathan Colton. I wish I had a story like that. Or better yet, like right. Enron really wanted to use one of my illustrations. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't no. have anything like that. I think... Um, the times I've sold out once when get uh, within a year or two of Get Your War on Breaking Big, Condé Nast was putting together a media package where they wanted to prove to ad buyers that Condé Nast was the hippest brand. And they paid me $3,000 to make some Condé Nast cartoons in the Get Your War on style. And I did it because at that time I was still working as a freelance fact checker. I was not a professional cartoonist. And I, <laughs> I think at the time I was still making them on my ex's computer. Like I didn't have my own computer. So she was in grad school and be like, I need to use my computer and be like, but I have to make more of my filthy cartoons. Were you in New York at the time? Cause that's a super New York story. That's like the time I, my ex and I slept in, in the same bed for a couple of extra months because we couldn't afford to bail on the rent. Yeah, totally. So I think I took the Condé Nast money and used it to buy a laptop. And I'm sure that's why – I'm sure I remember that because that's probably how I justified it to myself. I'm not selling out. I'm investing in my career as a subversive political cartoonist, you know? Yeah, I can't think of – yeah, I wish. I wish I wish I had more stories like that. The census thing happened – you had already had success with the comic by the time that came along. Yeah, so what happened was I had said I was going to quit being a political cartoonist when Bush left office. So that – so – yeah, I think I've I think I filed my last cartoon the day Obama was inaugurated, and then you know that we were in the middle of a financial crisis, and I had done no no financial planning, obviously, and so it was just like I think I was borrowing money from my parents, and uh, my my wife and I had split up, and I was trying to cover this mortgage, and was like I'm I fucking need a job, and my friend was like go work for the census, the census is hiring, so I started working for the census. Uh, and that's where the pencil sharpening thing came from. Early in, in my living in New York, I had a job for Zagat uh, where I would have to stand outside of theaters as they were getting, not maybe uh, like Broadway theaters. Oh, and ask people what they thought of it? Yeah. Hand them a card, make oh, them fill well, it out. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like, I mean, God, you know, God bless pe the people who do it because it's important that census, not the Zagat thing, but, you know, it sounds like kind of a potentially miserable experience and, and perhaps an opportunity to really, that must be when you're kind of like wallowing in the, re the regret of, of abandoning this thing that was honestly still doing pretty well. Well, the census, that, <laughs> that summer was a very intense summer in my life. I'm really glad I worked for the census. I, be I believe in the census and... I think the census is a wonderful tradition and a wonderful institution. It's obviously extremely important in politics for representation and allocation of resources. The actual work could often be really fun. Like I really like talking to people. I think it's really, it can be really cool just to talk to people who you would otherwise never have a conversation with. And there are obviously a lot of those types of conversations when working for the census. Um, I got to know more about the town I was living in by just going into buildings that I had always walked by and never seen, you know, like the kind of voyeur thing, like you've never seen what the people in this building are like or what the apartments are like, or even that there are apartments in here. You know, a big part of the census is like figuring out which unit number corresponds to which, you know, door in a, in a, in a building. I did feel self-conscious walking down main street with my census bag over my shoulder and my little clipboard because I, part of me was like, Oh God, what a like, what are, does everyone think I'm a, 
a loser now working for the census. And that and that's that's my problem. That's not the census's problem. You know, you're not a loser if you're working for the census. Like it actually paid a decent hourly wage and the work is important, you know. But that was my insecurity about about it. And then in the midst of all that, <laughs> I was under a lot of personal stress so my face broke out in shingles. So I could no longer I could no longer <laughs> could no longer go out and knock on people's doors. I'm sorry, you were too ugly to be a census taker? Is that yeah, right? Yeah, man. Yeah. It, it looked like I lost a fight with a radioactive wolf. I mean, <laughs> it's just like incredible. Half of my face was twice the size of the other half. I had pieces of my lip falling off. It was just like so insane. It was such an insane summer. But it, and I think like I mentioned earlier, I think maybe the tension of kind of being a little unhappy or frustrated with the census job, I think led in part to me being like, fuck it. I'm just going to start a pencil sharpening business. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I'm going to work it out. And I announced it on Facebook. And then my old friend, Mike, who's a printmaker was like, I'll make you some nice posters for your pencil sharpening business. And then we just took it from there. You know, (laughs) it was, that was an amazing summer. I'm sure you've discussed this a million times. Um, I'm so sorry for making it a million and one, but like, what is that impulse? What is that impulse that like, okay, this, I don't know if esoteric is the right word because a lot of people do, in fact, own pencils. But but the art of, of pencil sharpening is is in a sense esoteric. Like so, what what is that impulse that drives you to decide that yeah, this is the next thing that I'm going to devote my life to? I don't know. I can't remember really what brought it about. I think I was just making a goof on Facebook after one of the first nights of census after you know after a long day of census training where part of the training was you know they taught you how to sharpen pencils in a way because you were filling everything out in number two pencils for the scantron sheets and i think it was just like and this has happened to me before you know it was kind of just kind of a joke that kind of spiraled out of control you know like on election profit makers we were making this joke about how if someone if um Someone made a donate. A listener wrote me and asked if I would ban their friend from listening to the podcast as a joke. And I said, "Yeah, if you make a donation to voting rights, we'll do it." And then it just spiraled out of control, and we raised like almost thirty thousand dollars for voting rights by people banning each other from listening to the podcast. I've had so many fun professional or semi-professional things that have just come out of just like making a joke and then just like pushing it, you know. And then you've you've set a little benchmark for yourself. I remember this very specifically with the pencil sharpening, which was I wonder if I could actually sell enough pencils where I could recoup the cost of all these pencil sharpeners I bought. And then it was I wonder if I could make a thousand dollars sharpening pencils. You know, and you just keep like increasing the benchmark and just pushing the project, pushing the project, seeing seeing when the wheels will fall off. You know, you just keep going with it. You just keep going with it. And that, and that's such a fun feel, you know. It feels like the wind's at your back, you know. If the project is working, I mean, I've I mean, I've had a lot of projects that I've thought like, oh, this is going to set the world on fire. Publish, no response. Oh, I guess that's not the one. You never know what's going to hit, you know. Like, like I made this cartoon about called Relation Shapes, where all these geometric shapes would just complain about their home life and their love life. I thought this thing was going to be the biggest cartoon of all time, and you know, some people liked it, but you know, a lot of people didn't like it. You know, I, you know. You just never know. In order to sell it, you you have to kind of be a, a, the pencil specifically. You have to be a raconteur. You have to have like a certain sense of grandeur about it. Did you feel though that you were you you were uniquely gifted at sharpening pencils? I feel like I got pretty damn good at sharpening pencils. Yeah, and in addition to sharpening the pencils, I actually did my homework and I learned a lot about the history of pencils and the history of pencil sharpeners. And I got pretty good at identifying different sharp, you know, sharpeners. And I felt like I had a pretty good grasp on the vocabulary 
insofar as the project was satirical, I felt like I had a pretty good grasp on the vocabulary because I was living in the Hudson Valley at the time, which had a lot of artisanal stuff going on. And I also, because I had been reading and collecting all these mid-century technical manuals, I felt like I could write the book in a voice that would make it appealing to people because I had spent so much time leafing through these technical manuals. So I kind of felt like I was the gu- I was the person who could pull that project off. And then also, you know, I had I made sure that my pencil sharpening demonstrations were kind of fun and engaging because at that time I had dabbled in stand-up comedy. That's <laughs> talk about a project where I thought <laughs> that's one of those projects that did not go as I thought it would. I realized that I'm, I don't have what it takes to be a stand-up comic, but like I can be comfortable talking to people on stage and engaging with them and answering their pencil sharpening questions and berating them if they think it's all a joke or whatever. Like my experiment with the art form of stand-up comedy was very deliberate. I had never had much interest in stand-up comedy. And then in 2000, there used to be this thing called the Aspen Comedy Festival. It was it was put on by HBO, and it was like a big showcase for all different types of performers and comedians. And a lot of like industry people would come and try to find the next great superstar that they could build a TV show around or whatever. One year, I think it was 2005, four of us were chosen to go and represent like the New York City literary comedy scene. It was Amy Sohn. Uh, John Hodgman, Jonathan Ames, and myself. And I, at the time, was still a cartoonist, so I was doing my patented overhead projector cartoon humor. And, you know, it was was a great weekend because we saw a lot of comedy. And I saw this one particular comedian who was doing something I didn't even know comedy could do. He was this British guy named Stuart Lee. And I remember very vividly going to Stuart Lee's Midnight Show in Aspen. It was very dark and very slow and very quiet and really tested the audience, audience's patience. There was at least one walkout that I remember. And I was just so captivated with it. It was very satirical. He's a, he can be very political. He's a left, a left liberal dude. And it really was like, you know, I don't know if it's like hearing kind of blue for the first time or for me, like hearing the Minutemen for the first time. It was just like rewired my brain like, oh, that this is comedy. Oh, I want to do this, you know. I went back to New York, and at the time, um, Eugene Merman and Bobby Tisdale, who were two comics, were doing a weekly show at this bar called Rafifi, and they were those guys were were always super generous and were like really open, open, open arms, open minded. Like, yeah, come up on stage and try comedy. That was invite them up. Yeah, invite them up. Yeah, totally. And I went up on stage and tried to do this Stuart Lee deadpan audience patience testing comedy thing. I didn't know was <laughs> to pull that off. You have to have banked like 20 years, <laughs> 20, 25 years of, of being a, of being on stage. It's like going into the MoMA and being like, yeah, I could paint a Picasso. So abso- absolutely. Because you th- because with comedy, you know, you think like if I understand it and I appreciate it, that means I can do it because it's only talking. <laughs> right. So it was a total disaster. And then I realized, you know, but at the, but that did not go over well. But but when I would go up and do tours with Get Your War On or Fighting Technique with my overhead projectors and talk and bullshit and, you know, interact with the audience, like I always felt like, oh, that, that that's going well. Like I can do that. So I just realized, like, don't <laughs> I don't I don't know what the analogy is. It'd be like, don't you know, don't don't try to record after the gold rush. <laughs> 
two minutes after you pick up an acoustic guitar. Like it's not going to happen. You got to put miles on it. So, so I, when I would perform, I would just, I would, um, instead of doing this really kind of affected air sat Stuart Lee, I was just like, yeah, I guess I'll just kind of be myself, but more obnoxious. And that'll be it, you know, like, and so the comedy that I did going forward, the performances that I did, whether it was cartoon based or pencil sharpening based, or when I lived in Beacon, my friend Sam and I started doing comedy shows and we would do like two man comedy routines. That was just much goofier and much more just like, like on election profit makers. It's just me exaggerated a little bit, you know, when you're doing comics, you're going to compare yourself to Dan Klaus, you know, and you're doing podcasting you're going to compare yourself to i don't know whatever ivor glass or joe or, rogan the king joe rogan sure all time sure ben Shapiro, all the yeah, greats yeah. in pencil sharpening you found a thing that you could be the if not the best in the world at like certainly you know top 10 old dirty bastard there's no father to his style i don't yeah i don't know what tradition that was working in i mean obviously i guess it's literary humor and i had some experience with that in brooklyn and the the crew i was rolling around with back sure, in the it, Ops, it is kind know? of hodgman adjacent in a sense yeah 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 and he wrote the foreword to the book you know um and he was an early booster early and enthusiastic booster of the pencil sharpening project i mean that book did okay but i think like a lot of the other things i've made it was just a little confusing because it was it was literally a pencil sharpening manual, but it obviously got crazier and crazier as the chapters went on. And like the final chapter is like how to sharpen a pencil with your mind. And it just has all this, it has all these random asides and weird little tables and charts in it. But, but it was filled with actual pencil facts and knowledge, you know, like you could read it and actually learn about pencils. You know, we drove to an antique store that specializes in old office equipment in Connecticut. And I posed in the fields with all these amazing classic pencil sharpeners that I had read about online. You know, it was amazing to finally get to hold these classic pencil sharpening devices. But it was just, you know, it was kind of confusing in a way. It was confusing in the way going deep was confusing. You know, we would get we would get messages from people because we did an episode called How to Open a Door. Because it was a science show, and the, but the conceit of the science show was like, we're going to teach you how to do really simple things that you think you already know how to do. But then we're just going to go talk to a bunch of scientists about it. And we did one called How to Open a Door, and people got so pissed off. Nat Geo, how stupid do you – this is the dumbing down of America. People need a TV show to teach them how to open a door. You couldn't have just done a straight politics show, podcast, for example, right? I mean, you needed you needed a clever way in. You needed, you needed an interesting hook. You needed something that would allow you to do something that wasn't just – just riffing on the the news of the day. You know, it's interesting when I think back on how election profit makers started, it wasn't initially just going to be the betting. My So my friend, John Kimball, who I've known since middle school, you know, spends all day online. He's like a domain trader. He's always been obsessed with the internet and data and almanacs and demographics and all this kind of stuff. And he had told me that he had, this is the summer of 2016. He was betting against Trump voters on this betting market called Predict It. But he's also really interested in like campaign domain URLs, like who has the best campaign URL, stuff like that. And initially when I was thinking about doing a podcast with him, just because I think he's so interesting and I love talking to him and he's so funny. He's like one of the funniest people I've ever met. It was going to be about, it was going to be, I remember saying it was just going to be about politics and the internet and all the different ways they intersect. 
And then I think I was having a beer with my friend Jonathan and he was like, I don't know, man, I think you should just focus on the betting. The betting mm. is interesting. That's a strong, clean hook. I think it was Jonathan who who convinced me to hone it down to that one aspect, that one angle. And then we started working with Starley, who I knew from Podcast World. It The betting is the good hook comedically and then also it kind of keeps us grounded you know in a weird way even though it's so absurd and then we just like talk about whatever we want i so i guess to answer your question i mean obviously like every middle-aged white guy part of me thinks of course i should be hosting a huge political podcast i'm as smart as anyone else i read the new york times five years ago but obviously i'm not qualified for that i'm much more qualified to make a podcast with two friends where we just let inside jokes spiral out of control and dunk on Ted Cruz once every 35 minutes, you know? Does the betting play a similar role that pencil sharpening played earlier in your career, where it's just an opportunity to focus on something kind of absurd, but but hyper-focus on it and build out from there? Yeah, I think maybe you're right. I think so. And in a way, it's not that dissimilar to just deciding to only make comics using clip art. I don't have the... I don't have a masterful creative imagination. I, I'm not one of those creative people who can look at a black canvas and just blank canvas and just conjure a world from nothing or write a novel. Like I have to have restraints. I have to have limits. I've always been that way. I think the only creative projects where I haven't kind of had these self-imposed limits, I guess, are probably like music related. Maybe that's why music to me is so fun and exciting in a way and feels unmonetizable in a way. I don't know. Like, once once I have the conceit, then you just start playing against the conceit and pushing the conceit and seeing how far you can take it. Like, okay, so the book is going to be about pencil sharpening. How crazy can the pencil sharpening techniques get? Can we do a whole photo spread about how to sharpen a pencil while you stand in front of a car? Like, that's a pretty funny idea and it's going to be a really crazy photograph. Like, and we'll treat it with the same gravitas that we treat sharpening a pencil with a straight blade, you know? Or the political podcast, it's going to be about betting. But we'll also, you know, talk about whatever else we want. I don't know. I think I do. I do like to have the conceit. You know, I guess it's the elevator pitch. I don't know. This is a this is a this is a cartoon where it's just it's just weird geometric shapes yelling about whose turn it is to do the dishes. Like that's the world. Just do everything you can within that world. I feel like I like that stuff. It's very stimulating to me. You know, I find that kind of stuff is just as exciting as being told like, yeah, you can do whatever you want. Pitch a TV show. It can be whatever you want. I, I then I shut down, you know, it's it's I, I, don't, I feel like maybe I don't have the creative confidence to to build something from scratch. Somebody tells you do a TV show, you can do whatever you want. And then you do an episode about how to open a door. Yeah. One of our producers, I'm not going to say which of our two producers was always very, very down on that episode. And she she was vindicated. That was a mistake. That was a tough sell to the network execs. But I was like, this the title is just so incredible and it could just be so great. And sometimes the professionals do know what they're talking about. 